Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. Welcome back to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu, the podcast. How is everybody doing? Now, I don't know when you're going to listen to this episode, but it is November and it is cold in Texas. So much so that I have my scarf on in my bedroom. Yes, it's that cold. But this is not about me. Today is about my guest. Julia Busby. We met on Facebook, which is where I meet a lot of my guests, but also I think we probably met on a podcast group. I'm not sure, neither one of us remembers, but who cares, right? Because we're both here today. The beautiful thing is she is one of the most important people in the world. If you listen to my podcast, you know I always brag about teachers being (laughs) ultimate people, and you don't have to be a teacher in a school to be a teacher. You can be a mom, an aunt, a friend, but if you're able to impart knowledge to someone else, you are a hero in my book. And so today we have a real teacher, which is amazing. Thank you. She's only my second (laughs) or third teacher, which is great. She's going to be talking about things that we talk about on this podcast, but more importantly, she also has a podcast and it focuses on mental health issues. So we are best friends already, you know, this is awesome. (laughs) So Julia, what's going on? Good morning and welcome to Suicide Pages. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I have my coffee here and I am ready to talk all things with you. I love it. Ironically, I don't drink coffee. I wake up (laughs) with this much energy every day and my kids are like, mom, why? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It is what it is. Let's keep it moving. So where do you want to begin on today's page? Um, I believe I'll start with the glorious, amazing, picture-perfect story that everybody seems to gravitate towards when they're young. Um, I met somebody when I was 17 years old, and um, we stayed together for a very long time. We ended up getting married. We were high school sweethearts. We had um, three kids. And I was married for about 11 years. So um, we got married when I had just turned 19. And then we had a son there afterwards, shotgun wedding. (laughs) Anyways, um, and then by the time we were about 21, our relationship was volatile. So... um, domestic violence Mm -hmm. um both of us were kind of at our at when like not really understanding what was going on no one talked about mental health at that time Mm -hmm. um shocker um i come from a mexican american family so nobody cries we don't Mm want to hear about it here's a chancla in your butt you know (laughs) like you're nigerian (laughs) yeah yeah so i didn't know chancla but honey don't even go there what Yes. So, um, it was just really isolating in that sense when you have no idea and you get married so young, um, had our second son, uh, 22, 23. Um, and then I started, we just started going through these cycles, like every three months or so where it was horrific, um, 
at that time, it was like the only thing I had left to salvage anything for standing up for myself with my, was my voice. And it wasn't a very good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just one day about 11 years after that, um, I just got to a place on where I didn't see myself anymore mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't even think anything was wrong. I thought it was me because I felt that those words and those feelings were directed at me being crazy or me being the problem. Mm. Um, I stayed at home with the kids. um, And then there was a lot of control issues, a lot of those other things. And uh, Valentine's Day, 2008, I had enough. Uh, My daughter was with me. She was two, three, three at the time. Mm. And, um, the day before I had reached out to my parents and sometimes you don't really know when someone's asking for help, Mm. it might not come across as, Hey, specifically help me. I am in this type of relationship. Sometimes we don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, we subconsciously reach out. My parents didn't know how bad it had been for a very long time because they never talked about it other than like normal fighting, you know, whatever. Um, My mom said, oh my God, like, I can't believe you didn't say anything. And I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow. Your dad said I can come and help. And I was like, okay, what are you going to do? You know? Um, And she was like, I'll help you with the kids and you can go to a shelter or you can, they didn't even know, you know? Um, And I was crying and I was upset, obviously. And then my husband and I had another exchange. Um, he had come home from a business trip and said something uh, assaulting to me. And it was just the straw that broke with everything that was going on. It was just too much. And I snapped. Like all of a sudden, I, I just remember like being numb, like not knowing really what was going on, but I did know. And then I had, my daughter was playing at the window and then in the kitchen, there was my antidepressant on the counter and it just had been refilled. And then there was also a giant jug of ibuprofen that was on the counter, like a Costco sized one. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a note and I remember saying that I just wanted the fighting to stop. I just was tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, when she was at the window, then I remember going towards that ibuprofen bottle, like thinking, okay, you know, like there's 70 million pills in there. Mm -hmm. And then at the very last second, I said, no, I'm going to take these because then I'll go to sleep and I'll never wake up. So at the very last second, I switched to the antidepressants and I eat like 29 of them. Um, And then I went to go uh, lay down in my bed to die. Um. And then all that stuff happened, but what happened and subsequently after that, and I went to um, a rehab facility after that and met wonderful people that like were dealing with depression and really dealing with like deep mental health issues. Like they were hallucinating or I met this amazing older retired man who um, was going off for shock therapy. So talk about trauma. You know, I didn't plan on surviving. So then, (laughs) you know, I, I wanted my one way ticket to be away from the pain, Mm. but then in all actuality, I survived, which was wonderful. But then I also had to learn how to unpack my life and move forward, but then also be exposed to all the stuff that I didn't even know was, was around. Hmm. what do you mean? Like the older man, like, where are you going? Cause I made friends with everybody <laughs> there. Finally, when I finally came out of my room um, and he was like, Oh, I'm severely depressed. They're going to take me to have shock therapy on my brain. And I was just like, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, blah, blah, blah. So it was an eye-opening experience to meet a lot of other people that are impacted in some other way. Um, but we ended up getting a divorce, obviously. Um, and then about 10 years after that, 
uh, he was still, we were still having issues because we had to co-parent a whole bunch of kids together, um, still behaved the same way. Um, so I was still going through that trauma, even though I wasn't in the relationship anymore. And for his privacy and respect for mental health, um, about four years ago, we found out that it was an underlying mental health condition that he had. Hmm. So that's why I chose to start the podcast. I started to talk about preventative mental health um, because there's so many people that have no access whatsoever where they won't reach out because they feel like a freak Hmm. um, or they're stigmatized against because it could be some certain condition, you know, um, my ex-husband has gone through therapy and is taking his medicine and, um, he's doing great for all I know. Um, but we don't, I have no, (laughs) no, like there's a line, like you can't be in my life at all anymore because of the trauma. Um, So I believe that I was struggling with PTSD before I attempted suicide. um, And I still struggle with it till this day. I didn't know I had it until I fell on my butt um, a year and a half ago is when the first episode happened. I had no idea what was going on. Um, So I'm in CBT therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of work that way. Um, But it's basically like a complex PTSD because of the environment I was in for so long. So it's, it's tough and it's hard to understand that you have a condition because of an environment that you were in. I wasn't born this way. Um, That's really hard to digest, but I think through the recovery process um, it's definitely been a challenge. And then my new husband, I've been married for seven years now. Um, it's like, he had to go through training (laughs) how to deal with me because he was doing things that he thought were, was okay, but it's like a no, no for, Mm -hmm. you know, you just have to become more aware of it. So he does therapy for himself and then to get skills. Um, his therapist is specializes in PTSD and my psychiatrist, um, or my psychologist, um, thinks that we're doing so well because, um, he's doing the skills and, and speaking me into speaking to me in a way to where I feel safe. Cause my whole condition is about fear. Um, so what I said, and rightfully so. And rightfully yeah. So. so in really unpacking that and understanding that my whole condition revolves around being terrorized, like my body feels it, not necessarily me, you know, like, and then I have on top of that, I just have a genetic anxiety from passed down generations. Um, so I have a problem with planning or thinking about the future with my anxiety, but then my PTSD keeps me stuck in the past and I feel that in my body. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like two different worlds kind of. Um, and then sometimes during that um, episode, that first one, it was so bad. Um, I lost 30 pounds, couldn't leave the house, um, just had that agoraphobic feeling like everybody was after me. Um, and that took quite some time. Um, and really close friends. I lost a lot of friends because when you see somebody that's in crisis, when they're, um, dealing with PTSD or trauma, sometimes they act a lot different, you know, sometimes their, um, behavior could be out of control. Maybe it'll be a little bit more reckless. Maybe it'll be, you know, um, a little bit more scatterbrained. Maybe they will seem like they're more all about them and they're not listening to you, you know? Um, so in that sense, my circle of friends, um, ironically enough that also deal with their own mental health issues. Cause guess what? Everybody deals with them. <laughs> Shocker. And, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, I completely hear you. I think, um, I was, I was letting you get it out because a lot of people, maybe like you, maybe. I mean, of course, until you mentioned the family history of anxiety, I was like, okay, well, that's a little bit. That's a, that's a, a different twist to it. But whether you had a family history of anxiety or not, I think the world as I've seen it in the last two years, I started, I started doing this work, completely under freaking estimates the power of trauma. I will say it till I die. I'll take it to my grave that the world completely underestimates the power of trauma. You had 17 years of family history of anxiety. You had that. Mm -hmm. You were not afraid of going outside your room. Something happened when you met this gentleman at 17 and you know the rest of the story that you told us. And so we generally, all of us, we all, you know, the brain wants to go back to safety, right? Yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. it's safe. The truth is you were doing just fine. If these traumatic incidents did not happen to you, you wouldn't be, we would not be having this conversation with your family history of anxiety still. So mm -hmm. I think we have to acknowledge the elephant called trauma the boo called trauma, because we don't, we generally don't. And one, if you listen to any of my podcasts, you know that I don't give mental illness any credit for suicide. I don't, because I know that most people who are mentally ill, truthfully, who get their medication and get the support that they need are not busy looking for a way to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they're like you and I in, in quotes, we, they have quote unquote, no problem. We're all starting on the same slate. But if you have mental health illness, mental illness, and you don't get treated and you don't, you don't have support. Yes. And then you toss in substance abuse. It's over. Right. Mm -hmm. Or most people that kill themselves are like you. They were traumatized, whether you call it domestic violence or sexual abuse or rape or lost their money financially or they've got a broken heart something made them say i'm done and it's usually not one thing like you said you know there's just one little day and it's like okay that's it i'm done like but it's been series of unfortunate events that's been building up and building up all of them in the department of trauma so i love your story it's very very empowering because really it's about survival ultimately and that's what i tell people on my podcast it's not about death because I'm not speaking to any dead person. I'm mm -hmm. not speaking to people that went, got to the edge like I did and came back and mm -hmm. acknowledge their trauma. Now, you know, I'm also a life coach. So of course, I'm all about life coaching. Now that I see what coaching can do, I'm mm -hmm. almost tempted to say it is better than therapy in a sense, because what coaching does is it dares to force you to move forward. You see, and you said it yourself. You, are go you keep going back. Well, guess what? You can't grow if you don't get out of that comfort zone. And that's what coaching does. So therapy is great. Therapy is bringing you from the past to today. Coaching takes you from today forward. And so probably that would be a good thing for you to consider in the future. But I love that you've painted the picture of what I say all the time, trauma. Mm -hmm. We have to acknowledge trauma otherwise we're just playing and you've probably said ptsd 10 times today and that's trauma is in the middle is in the heart of ptsd you know i get angry at my ptsd quite a lot exactly. but, but at five at five years old at 10 at 15 you didn't have that trauma you still have the family history of anxiety though that's what i want people to understand that having a family history of mental illness does not make you suicidal trauma is what's is what makes the difference. And, and what's interesting- in the trauma. And then you now develop secondary symptoms of depression and anxiety. Of course, now you can treat all that, you know, with medication, but if you're still going back to the toxic environment, if you still go back to the, to the traumatic thing, that supersedes the medicines, but go ahead, you were saying something. Well, I think that trauma is huge and it, and it led me, what's really interesting about all of this and, I think, you know, when I was ready to file for divorce and my family was like, are you sure? Like you just- Because you're Hispanic, you know, we don't do that. We, we, we must stay in the marriage. We must be happy or how right. right, but they knew it was really bad. Yeah. Like this was like eye-opening for them. 
you know, um, and you they, mean the attempt was it was what it took. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's too late. Like you made it right. Thank God. But what right. if you hadn't? Then and it's they like, oh, saw the signs, but we just didn't. We just didn't. what do you mean you didn't? How many people do you know are going to be crying for help if they don't need help? Like, seriously? But we, you know, Nigerians are like that. What do you mean is depressed? And that's for white people. Like this, literally they say that. Like literally it is what they either say. <laughs> You're just like, what? Okay. Yeah, so, so I got the courage and I knew it wasn't right. And when I was in the hospital, they said, you know, um, you didn't die from your overconsumption of your anti-depression. I like the word overconsumption. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, they said that if I would have taken the ibuprofen, it would have been a different story, possibly, um, with liver breaking down or something. Anyways, but they said, and I will remember this for the rest of my life. They said, it doesn't matter if you wanted to take that ibuprofen or your, your pills or, or if it was M&Ms, like you thought that if you took that, you were gone. And you, you acted upon it. You see, yeah. you thought about it, but yeah. you also acted that. I think that's a good, that's, that's a dangerous sheep from the goats. Yeah. Because I thought about it, but I didn't act on it, but I didn't act on it because I couldn't, I didn't, I, I was looking for a way to drive off. Mine was different. I wanted to drive off of the highway and I, there were just too many cars until I got home. I'm like, wait, I need a space in this highway, y'all. Okay. Can a girl do what she want to do? And I didn't get the, the, the space, the opening in the highway. So I'm here today. Yeah. So they said, um, the act that you followed through, blah, blah, blah. You need to change your relationship else you're going to be dead next time. So, yeah. So they said, and this is common. We see this, you know, blah, blah. They didn't, we didn't know about his um, condition or anything at that time, obviously. Um, and so I took it upon myself and we ended up moving out and then we started over. So um, I had always wanted to be a teacher. So I went back to school. I had my AA and I finished my bachelor's degree. I finished my, my master's degree. Um, I met somebody new, eventually got married five years after that. Cause I wasn't sure if marriage was going to be for me because I was traumatized. Um, and then I got a job as a teacher of a specialized program in special ed, and my friends were all impacted with communication disorders, autism, and I really felt connected to that community because like myself, we were impacted neurologically, right? We had a hard time regulating. We had a hard time with people understanding us. Um, we looked normal on the outside. Yeah. We look, you know, I love that. Yeah. And I had my little melting pot of friends. You know, I was the second teacher of color in the building um, that was licensed. Yep. Mm. And we had, you know, they bust kids in. They were grades four through six. And then I eventually went down from first through six. That was a little bit of a nightmare because they were couldn't sit in a chair and they were terrorizing everyone. So um, really built a beautiful community. Um, it was really hard. Um, there was acts of violence in there. Um, and that's where I see a lot of the kids that are in school that aren't even in special ed, they're throwing chairs and they're beating up their teachers and they're doing all these things because there's so much trauma in their life that has happened outside. Been acknowledged. And, yeah. and, and then sometimes, you know, poor kids, you know, because I'm a pediatrician and I dare to say this, they have nowhere to go. You as an adult, you could decide, okay, I'm going to move out. I'm going to move to Timbuktu and we're going to start afresh. A nine-year-old, a 12-year-old, and even a 16-year-old, they, they, they have to come home to that ogre or go to school to the ogres every day. And so when a child kills themselves, I always want people to please, before you, you say, oh, they were mentally ill, check first to see who was that child? What happened to them? What were the in environmental influences? And then um, we love that class. And then um, I was one of the best teachers that the district had. Um, and then I just started like breaking down. I was in, a manager. Uh, basically, I taught the kids. There were um, one year I had 14. That was my highest. Um, 
and then when they would move kids in. So if someone can't get uh, be taught in a public educational system, the school district has to pay for a treatment center or an education for them. And sometimes these spots cost a lot of money and there's not enough of them. Um, and so I ended up getting a student or I have a handful of students that I was able to teach and work through because I didn't see their disability as something that was bad. Like I just, they just didn't meet the right person yet. Like mm -hmm. I know with autism, if you follow the, I say the manual, the manual, <laughs> you do all these things for them, provide visuals, pro teach them how to take breaks, like do all this stuff. They yes. are very, very good. Yes. Just understanding the, the process. And yeah. You know, I just love America for that because I know just now, you know, looking back at my, my medical school days and going to school in Nigeria, growing up in Nigeria, I mean, I don't know that in my days there was such a thing as autism. We learned this in school, but we don't really know. Everybody's called crazy. And then there's a huge stigma of the biggest stigma of all time. So the family don't want to talk about it. The, you know, mm -hmm. nobody wants to talk about it. And in Nigeria, I don't know about Mexico, but I know in Nigeria, we still have asylums where you just put them and leave them and that's it, throw the key away. And, and it's, 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 it, they're going to be shackled, you know? And My parents asked that, they were like, isn't there like a place? And I was all, no, there is not an asylum or an orphanage yes. that the state owns. That ended probably like, uh, when you were kids in the, in the 20s but 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 then you know and then but that being said we do know that American history because I wrote a paper on the history of mental illness in African Americans I wrote mm -hmm. actually wrote a paper for blackpast.org two years ago for Martin Luther King Day or something I think for Black History Month and that paper has been I know it has had over more than 100,000 views the point I'm trying to make is if you go back to the history of mental health in America, the black people at least, and even the white people, there was a time when there was asylums. So mm -hmm. we have to also hold space for the third world countries who are also trying to, it's, it's just coming down to them. It's gonna take as long as it took for America to find it. I mean, in the seventies, they were still doing lobectomies, which means taking out part of your brain and doing shock therapy is okay for those who need it, but it's not mainstream anymore. It's for particular but then we do yeah. for everyone. And especially if you're a person of color, especially if you're a person of lobotomies or lobectomies, opening up your brain. And then who knows if those people were just acting like you did based on trauma and they snapped. Now that's not the same treatment as someone who's schizophrenic or who's bipolar, but they're all crazy. So mm -hmm. we treat them all the same, especially if they're slaves or they're black, you know? So we can't just assume that America is without its own, you know, in the UK, I can't remember the gentleman, the doctor, the psychiatrist who went to Europe and was doing the same thing to people of color. I mean, just opening up their brains and, oh my goodness. So it's not with, they don't, they have their own, we just maybe not now, but they have their own. And I, I can argue that we have a vice president who's still recommending um, shock, shock therapy for gays in America in 2020. So it's not, it's not that America is that far ahead. I'm, I've seen this, this is real. Like they actually still recommend that for a child who is LGBT. Who, do you know anyone that says, oh, I wanna be gay so I can be a victim of homophobia. Nobody chooses that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, you don't you don't ask me oh that that child is mentally ill no the child is not mentally ill the society says the child is mentally ill the society ostracizes the child the society stigmatizes the child and so the child has is trapped like you were pretty much you were trapped you you, you couldn't go to your parents because wait you're hispanic you couldn't go to your husband he's the toxic person you couldn't go to yourself because you yourself rejected yours you know what i mean like you are trapped and so what do you do you jump mm-hmm it, it's if you were a child it's it's terrible yeah. it's awful and you know I loved doing that the families loved the work that I did within that program I was nominated for that last year I was nominated for teacher of the year um, in my school district 
and um, I fell apart at work. My work ended up being a toxic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a mismanaged building at the time. I'll just say that. Um, but then also I was dealing with a lot of toxicity from my assistants. Cause when you have a classroom like, like that, they work so hard for me. They did so many amazing things. I taught them as much as I could, but what I want to say when you're a teacher in that, you know, I became a teacher to teach kids. I didn't become a teacher to be a manager of other people, mm. you know? They didn't teach me how to do that kind of stuff in school. But anyways, they worked really hard. They did the best that they could. But when you work in a classroom like that, when there is a lot of, like I knew my friends could have escalations. I I wasn't surprised by that, Um, but still it was rough because it could be loud. Somebody could be, you know, taking a break and maybe throwing a chair or somebody could hit somebody or any of that stuff. But um, we just started breaking down. So, you know, cause it's, you have to have a positive attitude to work in that class, you know? Um, and it just, I couldn't, I was triggered when we went to Mexico and then I came back and I was just like crying all the time. I couldn't concentrate. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that PTSD had done something like, I thought it was my anxiety. Um, I ended up taking FMLA from work cause I had like a billion days and people didn't understand. I didn't want to tell them that their leader was like massively falling apart. I had already been acting like a big weirdo. Exactly. Exactly. Almost also a victim of your own doggone circumstance. You said two or three times you've mentioned toxic environment. People forget that that is also part of who you are, the environment, your environmental wellness, so to say. It's part of who you are. I mean, whether it's at work or whether it's at play or whether it's at home. If you come home to a toxic spouse, the house is not a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. You know, if a ch- if you go to work and you have a toxic boss or toxic coworkers, work is not how creative and how productive are you going to be there when you're right. Not- so I and I I feel like it was like I didn't want anybody to know because I was generally in a good mood, so I didn't want anybody to find out and then have them say, "Oh, there is something wrong with her. She's crazy," you know. So I worked so hard. One of my best friends that worked with me, she said. God, I've never seen somebody work so hard to be happy all the time. Mm. She knew I was faking it, right? Oh, like yes. because if I if I wasn't like ah, yay, jumping all over and just the cheerleader for everybody, because that way everybody looked the other way. That's what I felt. Like that's one thing, but also, but also, most but, importantly, you don't get to sit with your feelings. If you do that, you don't, you don't get to acknowledge your own feelings because you're running away from something. There's nobody that is like that. You're running away from something. And then your friend was, she's a visionary because she picked on it. She said, you're working too hard. It shouldn't be that. I'm like climbing the ceiling. Look at me, everybody. You're so great. Calm down. Heaven forbid that you stop your feelings and your thoughts. Hey, we're still here. Oh my God. No, no, let's, let's do something else. And that's why I, I use my three A's for my patients a lot. I use the first A is acknowledge the thoughts. If you don't acknowledge them, they're just going to get stacked up and stacked up and stacked mm-hmm. up. The second A is analyze those thoughts. You know, wh- why are these thoughts here? Who are these thoughts and what, are they, what do they want? Mm-hmm. Don't sit with them and ask them what they want. Like literally in Nigeria, we just had an uprising by youth a month ago. And what the Nigerian government didn't do and hasn't done is sit down and ask them, what do you want? There's a reason that the youth are agitating and your thoughts are agitating for a reason. We want you to listen to us because we don't like the home environment or whatever, you know, you're being bullied at school. We don't like, there's a reason why those thoughts are coming. And then the three, the third A is act on that analysis. That's again, where coaching comes in. Okay, so which of your thoughts is first? Which is most, most priority? Get out of the marriage. Okay, what is the first step towards getting out of the marriage? Once you start moving towards achieving the goal, mm-hmm. all of the other thoughts will be like, okay, we're going to wait our turn because now you're analyzing each thought. 
So you, you can run all you want, but you know what to say? You can run, but you can't hide. And now- Isn't that funny? Like, and during that time, I didn't realize that I was running. Maybe I did. I don't know. But towards the end, so basically um, some other things had happened, blah, blah, blah. And I stepped down, like I said, I've done so much for this classroom. I've done everything. Um, I think I suffered secondary trauma from being exposed to certain children, um, even though I loved them to death. And my husband was like, and I cried and I was like, what are the people going to say? Like the parents, like I had always thought I was like this beast. I can handle it all. And, um, I finally chose myself. Um, and I stepped down from that position and I told them, you know, I told them about my PTSD. I told them, I thought I suffered secondary trauma, um, which is common. And a lot of teachers are suffering secondary or trauma from children that are impacted from trauma. Yes. How many times we've used the word trauma in this episode? This episode should just be called trauma. I mean, but you totally get it because not enough people get it. Mm -mm. Enough people do not get the role that trauma plays in our lives. And so they are busy looking for the low hanging fruit which is again, I go back to say less because every 40 minutes, there's a commercial about an antidepressant on TV. Mm-hmm. It so of course, it's easy. let's just call it depression. But here's the situation. If you have a child who has been traumatized at home and been traumatized at school and they bring the child to see you at the doctor's office and you put that child on medication, you are further traumatized. Mm-hmm. Because you have not acknowledged that the child is coming to say, help, there's so much going on where I am. Rather than do, it's easy to say, yeah, well, let's put you on such and such. Mm-hmm. Which of course, the side effect is that is what? Suicidal ideation. And then yeah. you have access to the medicine like you did. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a perfect storm because the, the trauma at home is still not taken care of. I have a, a, a client or rather a guest on my podcast who has refused for me to publish her episode because mm-hmm. it deals with major trauma from a close family member that was a head of a church. Mm-hmm. And to this day, she's like, no, I'm not ready yet. You know, but, you know, so it's like, it is traumatic because what did they do in the family? They said, no, no, you, 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 you. They were looking at her as the problem. Yeah. So what ended up with me after that, I stepped down, I went to work in the high school. So Mm -hmm. I work in high school. um, And what it's awesome about that is uh, we're the first school in our state to do an all inclusion program with all of our special education students. So, Mm -hmm. um, and we have enough fluent uh, student population, but then we also have a high poverty, uh, high Latino um, population at our school as well. So it is challenging on that aspect because we have a lot of behaviors. We have, you know, um, a lot of trauma um, that's, you know, there with our kids. Uh, but uh, it, it's just been a great experience to do the younger and then also see how um, kids move through services. And, and, you know, I've taught this one at third grade. Now he's in my junior class, you know, mm-hmm. so um, it's really great in that sense. So that's wonderful continuity also for the kids to be able to see the same face, especially if you were a positive energy in their life. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. They're so, like, buzz, go away. <laughs> I'm like, I'm <laughs> high school, like, after you graduate high school, you can hate me. Oh, you suck as a teacher. I know. Uh, but at least if I quit, I can go get another job because I have a high school diploma. So um, just really being there for them and, and really understanding that my whole spin in special education um, is because I was limited on what I could do or I was limited on what I how could I say this? Like the reason my, I love special ed so much is because I can see myself in a lot of the students that I serve, whether that be with my mental illness or with my trauma. So, um, 
I was that kid that never wanted to raise her hand in class. Um, I never want, I was in the, you know, go dog, go reading low group um, and all that stuff. And I think a lot of that was because I was a student of color and then I also had anxiety. So, uh, and then I was looked at as somebody that maybe was not as smart. Um, maybe somebody that just was slower, you know, when it was all just anxiety. It's interesting, right? Yeah, very, very interesting. Wow, definitely there's no question that, you know, we only scratched the surface with this episode, honestly, because I know that there's a lot more, because I would like to hear if you would like to come back about how you actually now integrate your experience into handling teenagers who are a very, very special population for me in particular, but also just in general, teenagers are mostly misunderstood. But in, in, in the meantime, well, let's, let's get the, the, the listeners to know where they can hear about your podcast and maybe oh, okay. a minute or two on your podcast and because and, and, it looks like it's complimentary to mine. Yeah. Where they can hear you and the name and all of that good stuff. And then of course, okay. they can find you on social media. Okay. All right. So my show is called Finding Her. Um, it was an idea about 12 years ago when I went through my divorce, I wanted to write a story about my life to kind of tell other people um, other than eat, pray, love. At that time when I was going through my divorce, there wasn't anything um, like personal development. Maybe there was on podcasts. I didn't know too much about it, um, but I remember watching Oprah and there was a book called Broken Open. Um, that one was good. I'd go to the library. I'd go to like Barnes and Noble and scour. Like, why can't I find something that's a, like I can resonate with? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write a story, but then I felt like no one would, would want to read it. You know, I just was in that place of trauma and coming out of it that I just kind of packed it away. And then I started a business because of my downfall. And I was like, I can't, I'm not the only one that's going through this, exactly. you know? I almost so, don't even want to call it a downfall, really. I don't think it is. Right. And so um started the show and I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be about because I was afraid to start out and come out and say it was mental health. Um, like here's the crazy woman show. And <laughs> then, you know, I went through my journey and we did a lot of uh, self-help personal development. And I was like, why can't mental health be included in this as well? Like, why does it have to be its own section? Why can't we teach people skills in mental health embedded in everything? And so then I was like, we're going to do preventative mental health. Like, so anybody that is having these issues and, you know, the coronavirus came up and then it was like, of course, everybody has all these issues, you know, um, this is what I've been preaching the whole time. Whoa, now you, I know. you know, so um, finding her, um, it is on all the major like Apple, Spotify, Google, all that stuff. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram at Julia and Busby and then under the same name on Facebook. Fantastic. And Busby is spelled B as in Bravo, U as in uniform, S as in Sierra, B as in Bravo, Y as in Yankee. And everyone can spell Julia, I think, with one L, of course. Yes, yes. Wow, Julia. You can call me Buzz, too. <laughs> it has been so amazing and so eye-opening. I think I need to be on that podcast because I, I yeah. also need to go on a journey of finding me. And I, I, we'll talk about that offline. But yeah. before I let you go, finally, can you give us... <laughs> one line, just a piece of advice for anyone who is the former Julia, the one that was in that marriage full of toxicity, that environmental toxicity, or the same one that was at work, that first job where you were trying to do everything, but you and I know that you, were, you really just needed to do just enough. What would you say to that, that, that Julia, that person who's walking that walk right now? It's okay to ask for help. Mm. And maybe you don't even know it's asking for help. Maybe it's reaching out to somebody. Maybe it's even saying, hey, I just feel afraid or I'm alone. Mm. Like maybe the, I try to think of me in a sense of before I even knew I needed to ask for help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that stigma, that stigma is so horrible. Yeah, I would say that's a really hard question. 
Mm-hmm. That what really if, is. What if I said it wasn't hard? What if I told you to give yourself permission to not look at it as hard? What would you say? I need help now. That's what coaching does. Mm-hmm. Coaching gives I need help. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. If you freak out or you do this, it's okay. Because so many people are doing it too. They're just not telling you about it. They're not. And silence kills. That's one of the, the two hashtags by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And the other one is talk saves lives. Those mm-hmm. powerful hashtags. So yes, yeah, silence kills. And sadly, we are dying by the number in our silence. Well, I'm happy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I was a little nervous about it, but I did okay. There's the lady who has a podcast. Listen to that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us. Yeah. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. Yeah. You definitely are a good storyteller. I hope you recognize that you are a good storyteller. Your story is powerful and just lean into it and um, maybe even get a few speaking engagements or write that book, you know? I know, I know. Out there who is waiting for your book as a guide for them. I know that's what I think about too. Cause I was like, ah, I love the eat, pray, love, but I don't have enough money to go to India and I don't have this, you know? And you know, there's so many knowledgeable people out there that are willing to help others. So that's why I love this whole podcasting. And also because you're uniquely you. I mean, there's only one Elizabeth Gilbert. There's already one. I, and I honestly, for the record, I didn't finish Eat, Pray, Love. I thought it was a little, I don't know. It more like it, it I loved it in the and sense of like India, a movie. I know Oprah loved it or whatnot, but when she got to India, I, I got lost in the, it was, it's, it was slower for me than, yeah. You know, and this is just my truth and I, I accept it. I own it all day. I, I didn't think it was, it was I, I didn't learn a whole lot from it. I mean, it was a huge buzz and I'm happy for her. She sold millions of copies, but I do know that the transformations is in the little, the, the non pre lovers, the, the small steps, just the acknowledgement steps, those little ones, the baby. Yeah. The, I, when I connected with her too, was when she, was having that hard time emotional wise um, because of the divorce. And I hadn't seen anything like that written. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm like that. I could, yeah, okay, I could see myself there. And then she went, and I was like, out of the country. I don't have money for that. And most people don't. So I think, I think that the message in the book, if I might go there, is she's, she wants you to find your own India. And my mm-hmm. own India is in my backyard. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm very happy in my backyard. Today, I'm not there because it's cold, but I'm, this is my, my, my India is my backyard. And for some, the India is in their heart. And the India, yeah. your India is wherever you call India is India for you. India. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to hear the episode and let's connect. I will. I will definitely connect with you. I saw that we we're connected on Facebook already. So let's make it happen. Send me a link so I can schedule my own and then we'll make it happen. We'll do a tit for tat. Okay. What do you say? Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Julia Busby came here and she laid it all out. Thank I'm you. Sure I'm going to do a brief, brief synopsis. The okay. one word here was trauma. Honestly, if you didn't hear the word trauma in this episode, you need to hear the word trauma right now. Trauma, <laughs> trauma. trauma. She talks about the fact that her depression was secondary to the trauma. She had domestic violence. There was stigma. There was silence. There was therapy. There was control. There was PTSD. And she, to me, basically wrote the anatomy of a suicide attempt. That's what I heard. You know, there was CBT mentioned. I don't know if you heard that or not. And she talked about the fact that it was complex. It is complex. Suicide is very complex. It's not one straight, easy road to suicide. And then she also touched on the fact that her podcast was probably an outlet. And so what, we, what we're saying is you find your own podcast, you find your own India, you find your own outlet. And I went as far as saying therapy versus coaching, which, which is it, you know? I believe in both, but I am not a therapist, I'm a coach. So of course I prefer the other, right? And um, if you're willing to do the work, and I think that's what she said to us today, if you're willing to work, you will find your India, you will find your place. Um, And essentially, you can have a genetic history of anxiety, that's true, but trauma will unearth it (laughs) 
and bring it to the surface and then and then the rest is history so find her follow her on social media her podcast is called finding her oh my goodness that's cool right that's nice and um <laughs> it really does go about my story right but then I also think a lot of people see themselves in it too so um it's not an uncommon thing and if I could say learn more about your ACEs score and oh how much trauma is in your yeah. life. Like, mm-hmm. like my kids and I have huge numbers. Um, just really educate yourself. There's so much free resources. Yes. So and for those yeah. who don't know, you, you, you can fast forward. I do not know the podcast episode because I don't remember the numbers, but I have one episode dedicated purely to ACEs. ACEs is adverse childhood experiences, AKA childhood trauma. That's it. Okay. Maybe I'm on my show talking about that too. I haven't done one yet on it because it's so complex. Well, so. yeah, it is. It is. It is. And then my kids, but, are, my kids have a, I think it's, it's called a five or something. So my kids are up there because their parents are divorced because, you know, they have a mother who yelled at them because they have a mother who was traumatized, who was also a domestic abuse, abuse victim and all of that, who's mm-hmm. also had suicidal ideation. So yeah, my kids, and I have one child who's LGBT who just, you know, was just bullied for being himself. So wow. definitely it's it's an issue for me, but I digress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know, if you know me, you know, I could talk all day, but we have to, yes, we have to bring <laughs> close so that you can go about your business. Thank you all so much for hanging out. So long, farewell. Don't forget to tell someone about this podcast download, share. And if you think you might be needing a life coach in your life, holla at your girl. My link is calendly.com forward slash Dr. Lulu, D-R Lulu, calendly.com forward slash Dr. Lulu. And I'll see you on the inside. Peace out. Bye. Hey, are you stuck in indecision? Is there something you've been wanting to do, but are having a hard time deciding how to go about it? Maybe you wanted to write a book, you're having issues with your relationship, your kids, money. Maybe you want to quit your job, but you don't know how to go about it. Hmm. You might need a life coach. Believe it or not, I just launched my life coaching business this year, and I'm open to accept clients and we're having free consults. So go to calendly.com forward slash Dr. Lulu. That's calendly.com forward slash Dr. Lulu and grab yourself a free 45-minute session and I'll see you on the inside.